The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Your Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where our patrons get to decide what we talk about. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and people call me... Um... No, I was going to come up with a superhero name, but no, I got yeah. nothing. You're you're uh, you're the beige wombat. <laughs> I was just going to say the grumpy asshole. Well, that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, over over at our Patreon, our patrons have the power to sponsor a podcast of their choice, and we're trying to catch up on these as much as we possibly can uh, because, boy, you guys have some really cool ideas for podcasts. And yeah. This one's actually really neat. I like this one because uh, this is a podcast for, A, for one of our longest uh, supporters of the show. Uh, and uh, this is a this is a podcast that is sponsored uh, by, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, LaVert Burtmore. Uh, and uh, I like this one because it's two movies that aren't directly connected to each other. They're just movies that our patron really enjoys, and they have some mm. thoughts on them. We're going to read those thoughts. And, and they're two movies that neither of us had seen before. Uh, and they're and two movies that don't get a lot of discussion here in America. They don't get a lot of discussion because I don't think they were released in the United States. Or if they were, it was very yeah. thin. Like you can, you yeah. can, One of them is currently available on streaming. One of them is not. Yeah. And we had to do some... It's one of, it took us a we while to, to do track a, it down. A little reconnaissance <laughs> on that one. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to be talking about, on this uh, episode of Your Critically Acclaimed... Two movies that, spoiler alert, I think deserved a bigger audience and are worth seeking out. We're going to be talking about Sunshine on Leith, a musical uh, from Dexter Fletcher, the director of Rocket Man, uh, that is a jukebox I... musical all surrounding the music of the Proclaimers, who in America are known as One Hit Wonders uh, for the song 500 Miles. 500 Miles, parenthetical, I'm going to be. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and the, but in, in their native Scotland, they were a huge deal. Yep. Uh, and I'm a huge were... fan. So this is, <laughs> I've actually been wanting to see this for a while. And the, the uh, musical existed and then it was adapted to film in 2013. Yep. And, uh, we're also going to be reviewing the Russian superhero movie from 2009, Black Lightning. It has nothing to do with the DC character who has their own TV series. Totally different thing. And, um. Well, let's just... Uh, which one do you want to start with? Well, I, I saw Black Lightning first, so let's start with Black Lightning. Let's start with Black Lightning. He was an ordinary boy, living an ordinary life, with one extraordinary car. Then one night, everything changed. Now, he's on a mission to save the world. Get ready for the ride of your life. Black Lightning has been billed as the first Russian superhero movie. I don't know how true that is. 
Sure, oh, surely not. Uh, um, maybe maybe by no. modern contemporary cinema rules, but I, I find that a little hard to believe. Since uh, maybe the the boom of superhero movies, uh, you know, everybody knows the timeline that Spider-Man came out and sort of was a big deal and it sort of opened the door for a few other superhero films like Daredevil and, and well that's that's and, a that's a massive oversimplification and Hulk but uh, I think what Spider-Man it, did was it made mm. superheroes more than just action movies they became like these four quadrant blockbusters yeah, with and, really good romances and like you know everyone uh, enjoyed then, them even if you didn't just like beating up vampires and then uh, in 2008 that's when Iron Man came out and although uh, there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, planned yet that was sort of the, the start of something larger that would eventually become the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Black Lightning came out in 2009, so it was riding a wave that was already going. Uh, maybe it was the first Russian superhero movie in that wave of, of superhero dumb. Uh, it's delightfully quirky, this film. Uh, it's, it's, and it's, uh, and it's yeah. not about a superpowered person, but it is about a person who finds a superpowered car. Yeah, that's a fun little <coughs> twist, I gotta say. Mm. Watching this movie, this is a movie was uh, produced uh, by Timur Bekmembetov, mm. who uh, did uh, these series of like supernatural action movies in Russia. Stuff I think it was like Daybreak and uh, no, Night-, no, Night Watch and Daywatch. Yeah, that was mm. that was it. When um, I think I feel like those are kind of superhero movies. I think that's why I'm not like no, eh, is that really for a superhero movie, but. Regardless, he's got this really frenetic, energetic style. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it works. Sometimes I find it a little he also, abrasive. He also did that film Wanted in the United yeah, States. Wanted is his big hit in the United States. He's made some other films here too. Um, and yeah, he's he's got this sort of blockbuster sort of sensibility. And he produced this movie, which, man, this movie put a lot of American superhero movies in a blender. <laughs> and, and, and but but it didn't run it for very long, so there are these still like really obvious chunks of Spider-Man and oh. these really obvious chunks of like what what else is in there? Uh, we got we got Spider-Man is definitely in there. Real oh. hard. Iron Man's in here a little bit, especially in the climax. Uh, and then for some reason, Herbie the Love Bug. Like, it, it, imagine if uh, if Herbie could fly, mm-hmm. and and uh, mobsters wanted Herbie. And Herbie wasn't like a cute little Volkswagen Beetle. Herbie was like a classic car that looked honestly like the the Green Hornet's car, the Black Beauty. A little bit. Um, yeah. I don't know how well, conscious here, that one was, here, but it does. Here's what I love about it. the car. The car itself is uh, a 1966 Volga, mm-hmm. which uh, in, in the course of the film is, is uh, in the fabric of the film is mocked by the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character, Blandy McToast. And uh, they uh, they make fun of how uh, how ridiculous this car is. It's an old clunker. It makes a lot of noises, but it has these secret high tech gadgets hidden inside. So when he accidentally hits some buttons uh, after getting it, as, he gets it as a gift from his father, uh, and he hits a few buttons on the inside, and lo and behold, the the dashboard flips over, and new panels and levers appear around him, and he's able to hover it above the the street, and he can fly around town. Yeah, right? that's all it is. The whole it's, superpower is yeah. a flying car. It doesn't but have weapons. What I love flies. is that it's a flying ordinary car. It's not yeah. a, like a jet car or some high tech thing. Mm-hmm. It looks like the car from the second Harry Potter film when mm-hmm. when Ron Weasley steals the family car, and a, a running gag in that movie, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, is that the car kind of has this 
weird consciousness of its own. Yeah, and then like after they, it disappears, it, like, goes feral in the yeah, woods. Like, yeah, like, it runs off into the woods, and then later on in the movie, it comes out and, like, barks at something and scares it away, and then it goes back into the woods. <laughs> I, I love that movie, and that's my favorite yeah. part of it. I kind of wish the car in this movie had its own personality. Yeah. It's just a car. But it's just a I, car. What I think it's cool is that it's got this, like, experimental engine that allows it to fly in a mm. very flubbery kind of way. But I like the fact that because it's an old car... It's a sturdy car, and he can like <laughs> run through walls in it. Like there's a there's a building on fire, and it looks just like the building on fire in Spider Man. Instead of sw- instead of swinging up into it, he just rams his car through the wall on like the top floor. Gets mm-hmm. out of the car, grabs a kid, gets back into the car, and drives, drives out. Off, yeah. And the car is a is like a tank. It's like you know, remember that scene in, uh, towards the end of Back to the Future Part Two, where uh, Biff is getting away with the sports almanac, and Marty is like, "Hey, let's just land the DeLorean on his car, and his car will break." And he's like, "That's a 1950s car. We need a bazooka to do something to that car. This is a DeLorean." So that I think is kind of cool. I like, and it actually the other movie that even more so than Herbie that I realized that it reminded me of is Transformers, mm, the original okay. Transformers, which you still haven't seen, but. The big start of that movie, and actually it's a big start of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man as well, is here's a teenage protagonist who doesn't have a car. They want a car. Hmm. They need a car. They feel like they need a car. They want to impress girls. They want to get to school. They have practical reasons in their eyes for needing a car. Car culture has fallen by the wayside, but I think we can still understand it. Well, I think people still need transport. Do they, though? There's there's there's, there's a lot of stats recently about how uh, uh, young people are waiting longer, longer to get driver's licenses. That's true. Because they don't need to leave the house to find their scene anymore. They can do it online. That's also true. Mm. However, it's also can be seen as a status symbol. And in Mm. both cases, our protagonist has a richer, cooler friend in school who makes them feel a little small. Mm. And so they want something that will allow them to stand out a bit. And also they want to be able to take girls out on dates. So they're trying to get a car. Uh, and they go they, in, in Transformers he goes to a used car lot and he ends up getting an old car and he's like eh, it's old and I'm like dude that's an awesome fucking car isn't it like a yellow Camaro it's in a the yellow original Camaro. Yeah. I mean yeah it's beat up but it's still a yellow Camaro like I mean, yellow is irrelevant but like it's still a Camaro that's not an uncool car yeah you, you're, you're gonna see it look really cool driving that thing around if you just clean it up a little like you'll be fine um, and here again I, I don't know enough about hardly know about american car culture but i know enough to know what a cool looking car is Mm. i don't know enough about a volga Mm. Uh, the implication is that it's not an impressive car but it's still a decent old car it's still in pretty good repair even before you found out it could fly um but it turns out that the engine that is used to make this car fly was part of a secret government project that is also a hyper fuel accelerant. Like one drop of gas can like fuel this thing for, I don't know, mm. they don't really say, but the implication is like months, if not years. Uh, and there's an evil bad guy who wants to use this engine to fuel his ultra earth drill that will allow him <laughs> to drill underneath uh, Moscow in order to get all the diamonds that are underneath Moscow. And all, he's going to, he's willing to destroy all of Moscow just to get all these diamonds. All, all the diamonds, by the way, which are, are cut. Yeah. Like they're the all, cut they're diamonds. They're all right? look gorgeous. At, at the beginning of the movie, we see uh, two things. We see uh, a street crew unearthing the car. Mm-hmm. The car is found beneath the street. It's like in this cave. And it's like, oh, we'll haul it up and we'll sell it. And we'll get a few bucks. And they don't tell anybody, and that's the supercar. Yeah. And it was left by, there by scientists decades before. 
And we also see the bad guy with his giant earth drill running into those diamonds. <laughs> like, I'm drilling and I need diamonds. What the fuck is happening? I don't like, just remember this part. Plot later. It's important later. Um, mm. The bad guy in the movie is clearly like a Green Goblin analog in that he's, mm. he does, he's not the father of any of the other kids. It would have made sense if he was, but they didn't mm. go there. Maybe they thought that was too much. But um, he's introduced. He's a titan of industry. He's a famous person. Uh, our heroes are in college. And he's giving a lecture at the beginning. And much like the Green Goblin was sort of retconned in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man to be not just Spider-Man's nemesis, but also his moral opposite. Whereas Spider-Man believes in absolute yeah. selflessness, even at the cost yeah, of, even at personal cost. The Green Goblin, who really wasn't about this in the comics, is more of a Randian mm. kind of, uh, I have power, therefore I am better than other people, therefore it is my right to mm. use it, and you should be this way too. And that kind of, I, I liked that, it's a little clumsy now, but like at the time mm. there wasn't a lot of like... That wasn't terribly common in superhero movies. It was just bad guy has bad guy plan. And it feels the, like they've tried to incorporate that ethical discussion into Black Lightning. Yeah. To, to be sure, that's not something unique to the Spider-Man film. No. That's actually long, well-held uh, superhero tropes. Yeah, people who are polar opposites. Yeah, I just the, think that... the, the, the good guy and the bad guy are polar opposites in some yeah. way. Often I'm... they re uh, redefine characters over the years so they are more exactly opposites. Batman and the Joker is yeah, a perfect exactly. example. He didn't yeah. start out that way, but they just made him like, oh, he's chaos and mm. he's order. No. <laughs> Batman's still a vigilante. He's a, the law doesn't he's really a, track. He's a vigilante dressed as an animal. He's, he's, <laughs> he's not doesn't represent order. Not really, unless he, except in the '60s movie where he was mm. in '60s show where he was a fully deputized author, uh, officer yeah, of then, the law. Then he represents. Then he represents order, he represents order exactly. But um, well, wouldn't you like to see that Batman versus like? The, the chaos jokers yes. from like more recent years. I would actually, I keep yeah. thinking that they should reboot like the live action version hmm. of like the jokier Batman. Cause you get all those great, you know, all the great cameos, all the wonderful actors you can get. It'd be hmm. a bit more of a lark. doesn't need to be the, the main number one version of them, but there's so many versions of them now. Like, yeah, who, let it who cares? But my point was, um, <clears throat> excuse me. My point was, uh, you know, this was starting to become, as superhero movies started to be taken more seriously, more regularly. Hmm. And you'll notice that even the Superman movies, you know, we're a bit more, you know, Zod was a generic fascist. Lex Luthor was a generic madman, you know, mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. They didn't really represent much. Um, I think Batman Returns started really making that more tangible. X-Men was very, made it very explicit like it was in the comics. And when Marvel got around to it, with the, or when Spider-Man got around to it, it really was kind of secondary to like the love story and coming of age story in Spider-Man. But I thought it brought it out a little bit. It made it feel like it was about a little bit something more. Here we have... Um, our hero is young and he's impressionable and he's at a lecture from this really, really rich guy mm. and he's late to the lecture and the, and he says, I'm sorry, someone needed help getting on the bus and I helped them and that's why I'm late. And the guy's like, and that's why you fail because you're not putting yourself first. Yeah. And he goes to like this long speech where he's like, okay, who here would help someone on the bus even if it meant they might... Uh, they, Be late you, to my even lecture. Even yeah. my lecture. And if some people, a lot of people put their hands up. Who, who would do it if they knew they'd be late to my lecture? Some people put their hands down. Mm. You know? Who would do it if I offered them a million dollars to do it? And a lot of people are like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a, pretty much everyone puts their hands up. And um, then uh, uh, our hero actually puts up to him and says, okay, listen, 
it's too late for me to do it now. But would you give me a million dollars if I promise the next time I will ignore someone's mm. someone asking me for help and put myself first? And the guy's like, you think you're being cute, but yeah, here's a million dollars or a million rubles. I don't know what like the mm. the exchange rate is, but it seems a lot of money. It's, it's yeah, it's a, huge, a big a huge, giant wad of cash. huge amount of money. And he's like, oh shit. Um, so he's now had this sort of new philosophy that's been sort of stamped in his brain, and he wants to kind of. Start focusing on himself, on his own needs. Start it's, making yeah. money, and start he, kind he of learned, foregoing his family and he learns, himself first. Learns a bad lesson and uh, has to overcome it over the course of the mm-hmm. film. And uh, this film and a lot of superhero lore uh, does point out, and this is another big thing of Spider-Man mm. is <clears throat> when you have a lot of power, uh, you're actually more primed to become a villain, yeah, than you are to become a hero. Uh, because now you are more powerful than other people. You and, can take uh, what you want. And so when uh, a character comes upon superpowers, they're instantly tempted to do kind of wicked things. This or at least selfish things. So at least, this at is least a big part of indulgence. Yeah, a big part of Shazam is yeah. like, I, I can turn into adult. Great. Let's get beer. Like, yeah. that's the first thing they think to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, we're kids. Now we can get beer because totally you're an adult. Understandable. Mm. Totally understandable impulse. But valuable lessons are learned, and here, in exact Spider-Man fashion, it leads to the direct death of his father. Oh. So, like, <laughs> fa- father, fa- to... father figure, but yeah. No, I think, wasn't it who was his father? It was like his uncle. That was his father in this one. Oh, in this one, it was uh, his father. Yeah, yeah. Spider-Man was his uncle, mm-hmm. but in this one, it's his father. And so, and then, as a result, he realizes <clears throat> that that entire philosophy was oh. terrible. And terribly selfish, and he dedicates himself to using this new car. His dad just thought he was getting him a used car. He didn't realize mm-hmm. he was getting him a supercar. And now that he's figured out that it's a supercar, he starts using it to, as much as possible, help everyone he can. And he just starts flying his car around Moscow, just, like, swooping people up. He, like, picks up, like, purse snatchers with his hood ornament and, like, flies them around. And I gotta tell you something, all that shit is fun. It's so cool. It really is. I forgot how cool cars could be. That 66 Volga, and it really thinks of... I mean, we, we think of a flying car and you compare it to some of the more recent superhero films and how quaint that seems. Yeah, it's like one thing. All he's going to do is this car can fly. That's the, it. The car can fly. Well, it's like the Rocketeer. And, All he's got is a jetpack. He yeah. doesn't have anything else. He's not super strong. He mm. doesn't have laser eyes. He's just got a jetpack. That can be enough if you do you're, enough, you're, you're, yeah. enough fun things with it. You compare it to, you know, like uh, the, the tarmac fight in that the Avengers movie. So it's um, Captain America Civil, Captain American Civil War. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, and there's all these different characters. And they can all do different things. Yeah, one guy's gonna, giant yeah. and one guy's <clears> flying around shooting rockets. Yeah, and, and, and then Spider-Man and steals Iron Man. All, yeah, and everything's that. in there. And that's cool. That, that's fine. That's yeah, fine. That's, no that's complaining about it. But in fact, uh, that that would be a fine movie. Just cut off everything that's not the tarmac <laughs> fight. And that's a great movie. Um, uh, and and that bit at the beginning where they where they say super. There's too many superheroes. Let's regulate them. And they say okay. And then then yeah, that's it. It's very reasonable. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's actually a good idea. Yeah. Maybe there should be some oversight. <laughs> yeah. Because because otherwise people can sometimes act selfishly. <clears throat> Team Iron Man. Uh, anyway, yeah, you, bring uh, in, you bring in Spider-Man into your superhero universe, and the entire point of the movie is about how with great power comes great responsibility, and you never address that with Spider-Man. Mm. How the fuck did you manage to do that? <laughs> how did you let that slip uh, through your fingers? Mm. My point is, they've be- modern superhero films have become so elaborate that it will take a lot of innovation and creativity to make a flying car seem exhilarating, and this film does that. Yeah. The idea that you can land on a roof. Yeah. 
And, and how difficult it is. And they film it in such a way that it looks like something that's hard to do. Yeah. Like land on a roof and almost drive off the edge. He gets to be a good flying car driver. Yeah. yeah. And it makes you start thinking about like, oh my God. Can you imagine a Fast and Furious movie with this car? Like, <laughs> how cool that would be. All well, the my, great ideas my, they could come up with. My favorite with. bits is like he's driving the car through the sky and he can't really figure it out. So he reaches into the glove box and like pulls out the manual. Have you, <laughs> have you ever done that? Like a, a light shows up on your dashboard. It's like, oh, that I don't know what that symbol means. I've done that, yeah. And so you like now dig, I'm pretty dig, dig through the glove box and was, actually have to like thumb through the when manual. When I was learning how to drive, I think now I've got most of them. Down, well, now, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, I've, yeah I've, sure. I think at some point. But he's a kid. Is, he's a kid. Yeah. Our protagonist. So, yeah. But I, I, I think that's a very relatable experience. Like something wrong happens with your car. This one just happens to be hurtling through the sky. Yeah, um, you got real great sense of momentum to it. I was worried when I saw in the credits that Timur Bekmambetov's name was in it. Yeah. Not because I, I'm not a fan. I he's hit or miss with me, but mm. because he tends to edit his <clears throat> movies into oblivion, mm. um, even the good ones. And again, he didn't direct this one. Actually, I want to look up the name. Uh, who directed this one. Do you have that There's There's a pair of directors. It was okay. uh, Alexander uh, Voynitsky and Dmitry Kiselev. Okay. Uh, I don't know how much of it was them or the editor or just Timur like, wanting to go for something a little bit more classical blockbuster-y. Voynitsky, I mispronounced. Thank it. you. Uh, but uh, this one isn't choppy. This is actually very classical in a mm. lot of ways. It's actually... Easy to follow, good, mm. just and, and and not in a boring way, but just like a strongly. They're they're going for something kind of universal here, yeah, and the, the special effects aren't aren't you know slick compared to what we're used to, but they no. look good. They look good. They look better yeah, than something you'd see on a TV. Yeah, you it's, know? it's just good good modern CGI for a mid budget yeah. film. Like if you imagine, like again, a lot, there's a lot of people who'd be a little bit more forgiving about an episode of Supergirl. Maybe mm. than a Superman movie. Right. When it comes to CGI. Like, it's pretty dang good for TV. Obviously, if this had cost $200 million, that would look better. Mm. Uh, that's where we're at here. It looks quite good. Mm. It looks quite good. And again, this movie's 13 years old now. So you get a little slack anyway, just yeah. because we've moved on a little bit in our visual effects. But again, what are we animating here? We don't have giant monsters. We have a big stupid looking drill, which doesn't even take up that much screen time and a flying car. Mm. We can do a flying car. You can do a flying car. And the flying car is cool. I love that the flying car, even though it's mostly a CG creation when it's flying, uh, has real weight to it. Even when it like power slides in midair, they like film it as though it might have some traction because otherwise I think it would be hard for us to accept it as a car because we know what cars are like and how they handle. Mm. It's really good. The only thing with this movie for me is that it is just distractingly derivative. And it's, it's well, absolutely it's, just it's really, taking bits uh, and pieces. The climax from Iron Man mm, where like, it, you fly up into the sky with the bad guy, mm, that's in this movie. All of these yeah. scenes it, you know from other movies. It's derivative, but it's well put together. Yes. Um, my biggest complaint is that the main character doesn't have a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. He's just sort of ambitious dude. He learns a valuable lesson <clears throat> and then he's a no, good guy. Uh, yeah. Uh, now to... Um, to bring this into what limited uh, knowledge I have of Russian history, um, if, if I recall, Vladimir Putin took office in like the late 90s at some point, uh, like 99, say, yeah. 99, 2000, around there. Yeah. Um, I apologize. I know there are people who know this just saw far a documentary better than about this, um, and I don't remember the exact name, but I think that's about right. But uh, as as we now know, how uh, what a party guy Vladimir Putin is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Putin took um, office in 2000. So you were really 2000, close. okay. Yeah. 
So this was nine years into Putin's reign and a time when corruption was just running rampant. Yep. Uh, it's pretty well well documented how much corruption and how uh, how the oligarchy is sort of running the show there. So this these themes of uh, greed and hoarding wealth as a being sort of a, a villainous motivating factor uh, is actually a very salient political point. Mm-hmm. It, as, as political as a movie like this can get. Yeah, it's in a general sort of way. Green yeah. is bad. Sure. Okay. Green is bad. And also we want to take down capitalism. People would be like, it's a little too political well, for my superhero movie. Thank you very much. Greed is bad. And the people around you who are actually in charge of the country, who are hoarding as much wealth as possible and who are essentially projecting this idea that hoarding wealth is the only way to get power mm-hmm. uh, is actually an evil philosophy. Yeah. And, in, in Putin's Russia, that is sort of subversive. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, again, I, I can't say statement. that this it's, is... It's a moral stance. Exactly. It's a moral stance. It's, it's very it's very critical of what what's going on in the government. And that's actually really common in a lot of movies, things yeah. that are really critical or positive about what's yeah. going on in the government. It's, it's critical in a very general yeah. sort of way that probably the government wouldn't be too too upset about. Yeah. Uh, and we've all heard the stories and we've all seen the documentaries about the government just sort of disappearing people or poisoning them. Um, but, um, it, it's interesting to me when you think about, cause they do mention like, you know, Putin has a Volga, like that's a line of dialogue. Um, it's interesting to think about like, you know, what we know about Putin's regime and how things are running in Russia and how this does still feel like any other superhero movie. And mm. when you think about just how different America felt and looked to the outside world during the Trump era. Uh, which we're still kind of in. We're at least in the fallout from it. We'll see mm-hmm. how it goes. But um, it was a weird fucking time and corruption was rampant in the government. And yet at some point people did go about their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to go to work. We had to go get groceries. Still had to fight Thanos. You know, shit happened. You know, like basically. So seeing that this superhero story can also exist within that vacuum with only without like directly involving Mm. that element of the society in which it was created is interesting because as we've talked about before in a lot of our podcasts, um, all art is political either because it challenges or criticizes what the the status quo Mm. or because it merely enjoys it and doesn't go out of its way to do so. And thus at least tacitly supports it. This film seems to do a little bit of both. Where at the baseline, because it's a story of good and evil and because the villain has an oligarchical, that's probably not a word, uh, uh, bent, feels a little critical. On the other hand, it's also very safe. Yeah, it's also it's, very. It's also it's, very it's, general. It's couched in a pretty, yeah. pretty broad entertainment. Yeah. I want to read uh, what our patron had to say about it. Okay, uh, because I want to give them that time. Um, so, uh, Black Lightning is a fun, silly superhero movie nobody has seen. I had never even heard of it. Mm. In some respects, it just follows superhero tropes, especially from the 2002 Spider-Man, but at its core, I think it's a young adult power fantasy about getting your first car. The feeling of power and freedom that brings is a relatable experience across cultures, and the movie has fun with it. You don't need your car to fly to still feel like you have a superpower, and by the time you get to the romantic rival winning the love interest but having to hide in the bathroom, the movie is just having fun, and so am I. Um... To that point, there's actually this really fun bit where the uh, woman that our hero is in love with and also his best friend who's rich is in love with her too, Mm. uh, becomes convinced through a couple of coincidences uh, that the rich 
sort of not evil, but just kind of selfish guy. Uh-huh. Uh, he becomes convinced that he's Black Lightning. He's the superhero, mm. not the guy who actually is a superhero. And so she starts dating him and not the guy she's more into because she's just so impressed. And uh, But the thing is that he finds out she thinks he's a superhero. And now every time something bad happens in Moscow, he has to excuse himself. And then he's just with his phone thinking, please let Black Lightning show up. Please let Black Lightning show up. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of excuse. Please let Black Lightning show up. <laughs> it's, that part was funny. I mm. hadn't seen that one before in a, in a superhero movie. Credit where credit is due. That was clever. Um, but yeah, but that's a good point, though. The idea that it's about having, it's about like this sort of rite of passage. Mm. And how as you get older and you have more power, even if it's power that we can kind of take for granted, like the power to get around town yourself, that is, that does feel special, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's cool. And I like it when superhero movies remember to evoke something kind of pure and primal like that. Well, it's just something real. Yeah. You know, the the, the whole in, inter, interlocking machinations of a gigantic universe is impressive from a technical standpoint. Yeah. But what can we relate to in there anymore? Yeah, exactly. And, like, and that's why at some point you do need to remember what is at the core of these characters. The Hulk is about someone who is wrestling with his, uh, with his trauma mm-hmm. and his emotions. Spider-Man is someone wrestling with guilt. Captain America is someone about wrestling with uh, what it means to be a patriot, what it mm-hmm. means to, to live in a country and have responsibility about that. You can stay focused on that. You can do any kind of weird story you want. Because at some level, there's something, there's some connective tissue. Yeah. And as long as this is a story about a guy in his car, you'll always have that. That's something that I feel the Transformers movies quickly forgot about. Yeah. Only two of those movies are about someone in their car. It's the and it's the two good ones. It's the first one, which is mostly <laughs> fine, and Bumblebee, which is great. But those are the two I haven't seen. I've seen all the other. <laughs> I've seen the, all the bad ones. You really, you really should watch, at least Bumblebee. I think you'd like Bumblebee. It's I, a little I've, formulaic, yeah. but you'd like it. It's on, yeah. Of the films, love those transfer. It's the only one not done by Michael Bay, so yeah. I could tolerate that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't really have a great segue other than these are both films that were recommended uh, uh, by our patron, but um, this is a really, really fun movie, and I'm glad I finally had an opportunity to see it. It took us a while to track down a European DVD that we could then watch on an all region DVD player, uh, but it was totally worth it. Let's talk about. Dexter Fletcher's Sunshine on Leith. Have you thought about what you're going to do now that we're out? Mostly it involves your sister. Hey. Oh, come here. Matt, it's all right. I'm sorry to hear about Ronnie. It was my squad, Chad. It was my responsibility. One drink, then I'm off. Don't tell me. Tell your sister. She wants you to meet her pal. I'm sure your brother's lovely. I'm just not up a small talk. This one's different. Different how? He's just going to be staring at your tits. She's English. It's English. I'm on my way from misery to happiness today. Uh-huh. 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 Going to propose to Liz? <laughs> it was one night. It was 25 years ago, Jean. We were married, Rob. I want you to get out of my sight. Okay, so I am a Proclaimers fan. I like the music of the Proclaimers. You're like one of three people in the United States who are like big Proclaimers fans. There's not, I don't, you've mentioned this before, that there hits like a point in your life and like the, you said the average is like in your early 30s, but at some point yeah. in your life, you stop listening to new music and you just kind of enjoy listening to old music more. Yeah, you, you, go, you start searching backward rather than yeah. catching up. It's not about what's hip and popular right now on the radio. It's like, oh, that interests me. I'm going to check that out. And I found 
like my bands that I like listen to over and over and over again. And I will like just put on their, their albums and just put them on repeat. And that will be my day. Mm-hmm. And those album, those, those besides like a couple of the big ones, like the Beatles or whatever, who, you know, just grandfathered in, um, those bands are the talking heads, uh, uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners. Okay. Which is another band that was a one hit wonder in America, but actually had a bunch of great albums. And the Proclaimers. And the Proclaimers was a band uh, that was, I think they said they're still around. They, I mean, they still, I don't, I think they still make music. Yeah. They're still alive. But um, they're a duo. They're identical twins. Uh, and they do folksy rock. And they had a weird kick in the pants American career in the early 90s thanks to a movie that wasn't even that popular called Benny and June. Uh, which was a, a quirky romance, like indie romance. Very quirky. With uh, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson and Johnny Depp. Yeah, Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, Aiden Quinn was like a small town car mechanic. Mm. His sister had emotional problems and he was her caretaker and it was a full-time job. Mm. Uh, and then he wound up uh, in a poker game having to take care of a guy's uh, sort of awkward brother uh and Quir- he started he moved- quirky free spirits yeah. he has to move artist, in with you we're sick of him artist That's, guy that yeah. was the poker that was the poker bed he has to move in with you we're sick of him so this guy moves in and he ends up falling in love with uh uh the june character yeah it was was it was it mary stewart masterson mary, yeah okay sorry i was i was i almost wanted to say mary elizabeth winstead i'm like that can't possibly <laughs> be right <laughs> no I, I said mary stewart masterson. i didn't though yeah. that was my thing yeah. so uh so he falls in love with her and it turns out he's actually um, a very talented physical comedian who's been studying silent comedy and cinema for so long that he can like perfectly recapture classic Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton routines. Mm-hmm. Boy, was this 90s. <laughs> this is such a 90s concept. <laughs> the best part of the movie is this small like three scene bit from Julianne Moore before she was super famous, where she's a small town waitress. And he recognizes her because she was in one slasher movie once, and he reckon he does the entire scene to her. That was Julianne Moore. That was Julianne Moore. I, I haven't seen this movie since it was out in theaters in 1993. Yeah. So yeah, I don't remember she, Julianne she Moore. She popped up in a lot. I remember of the things. the waitress, but I don't I don't remember who was her. It was Julianne Moore? It was around the time that she was also in like The Fugitive for like two scenes when she was yeah, like the yeah. doctor in the hospital. And when was when was Shortcuts? That was 94, right? It was around the time she was popping yeah, out okay. about that. She, she didn't like make it like really well known I think it's all about Boogie Nights around the time Boogie Nights came out everyone's like okay she's famous now we all agree (laughs) but she was like on the periphery of fame for a Mm. while and I remember watching our As the World Turns um but uh, in any case like he he like recreates her entire scene in the slasher movie and it's kind of awkward but she's flattered that he knows her um but in any case um I think it's Mary Stewart Masterson who was a big big fan of the Proclaimers and said hey they got this great fun love song let's put it on the soundtrack and that song broke out mm. way well, more than the movie bigger did. Bigger than the movie did. Way more. And it's one of the best mm. pop songs ever. It just is. It's mm. catchy. It's fun. It's cheerful. It's got an unassailable message. It's just, I would I would walk 500 miles to see you. And if I had to, I'd walk 500 more. Mm. And even if I collapsed at the end of it, it would be worth it. Mm. It's a sweet, catchy uh, song. There is... Uh... Something unusual about the Proclaimers uh, in that they sang very uh, upbeat, optimistic songs mm-hmm. at a time when uh, grunge and cynicism was pr- one of the bigger parts of the music scene. Yeah. Uh, uh, rap was getting like a lot uh, heavier at the time. Uh, 
Mm. You know, we were far beyond sort of like your MC hammers and we were sort of into a much more violent music. Yeah. Uh, in like terms of metal and there's a lot, a lot of songs about death and mm. cynicism and, you know, here we are now entertain us kind of messages in pop music. And the Proclaimers were, it's nice to be in love. <laughs> and even some of their songs actually do bring up serious stuff, mm. but they always bring it up in sort of a playful kind of way. Yeah. You know, there are songs that they have that are in this movie that talk about death. But it's over and done with, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that, that person died, and it's really sad, and I still think about it, but it's over and done life with. has it's to go over on. over and done with. Great yeah. song. <laughs> so the Proclaimers have this big series of hits overseas. Mm. And if you just go on, if you're not familiar with them outside of that song, if you've never even heard that, the uh, 500 Miles I'm Gonna Be, uh, Pause the podcast. I mean it. Pause the podcast. Go to Spotify, YouTube, or Apple, whatever, wherever you get your music. Just look at the greatest hits. Just put it on. They're great. Mm. They're really wonderful. And the idea of making a jukebox music uh, movie, a beer with jukebox musical, uh, which is to say a musical in which all of the songs are pre-existing songs, and you just sort of build a story around yeah. them, uh kind of makes sense for their body of work because their songs are actually about interesting things sometimes. They look at love from slightly different angles, but they're consistent enough that your movie would have one whole tone. Um, so yeah, this is, a, this is a jukebox musical and it is about uh, a family and the people and their friends and they fall in love and they fall out of love and they fight and... They move to America and they go to war in Afghanistan and it's feels like it, when you think about it, it should be like this really big production like across the universe, mm. which was Julie Taymor's jukebox musical about the Beatles, which is really divisive. Like some, people, <laughs> some people like it's, it a lot. Some people hate it. And I'm right in the middle, where I kind of appreciate it's, uh, what it's going for, but it doesn't always doesn't always work. From what I've heard from uh, from my wife, who's a big Beatles fan, yeah. and, and other friends who are big Beatles fans, the uh, the less you're a Beatles fan, the more you'll like across the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've heard the opposite too. I've heard like gigantic Beatles nuts who really really love across the universe. Yeah. So so. I'm a gigantic Beatles nut. I grew mm -hmm. up a gigantic Beatles nut, and I'm just kind of I'm just kind of in the middle on it. Mm -hmm. I think there are certain sequences that are great. Yeah, and I kind of like the overall idea that even if you took... Because the whole premise of Across the Universe, really... It takes is, place when the Beatles were making the music, but in a universe without the Beatles. Exactly. So the idea is that in a universe without the Beatles, the sentiments that the Beatles spoke of that seem to typify a generation would still be there. Hmm. And they would come out in different ways. That's kind of interesting. Does it always work? No, and it's way too long. You did not have to put in every fucking song. <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, they did. Damn it. We're going to stop the damn movie, and Eddie Izzard is going to come out and sing Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And like some of my favorite Proclaimer songs are not in Sunshine on Leith. And I was, remember, I was waiting. I was like, how are they going to fit that in? Mm. And I, eventually I realized they're not going to try. But there's a lot of like fleeting dialogue references to songs yeah, that didn't make the which, cut. And which you had, was to, fair. you had to point out to me because this, this is a very Scottish film. Mm-hmm. The Proclaimers were big, uh, big in Scotland. They wrote the film, uh, they wrote the musical in Scotland and adapted the film in Scotland with no eye toward an international audience. This was, this is a local band. Yeah. Uh, 
that uh, that is biggest in their home country. Yeah, and and uh, and across Europe as well, but biggest in Scotland. Yeah, and um, there's a, a definitely a charm to local bands, and I actually like a lot of songs about local things, like bands who write songs about local bars or or just the local scene or other musicians that they know. Those are always very appealing to me, but they're not going to have a big crossover appeal, are they? Not necessarily. Um, Sometimes it happens. So there's a lot of insular references that, unless you're a big Proclaimers fan, i.e. if you're Scottish or William. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the biggest. I don't know all of the details. (laughs) But but you you spotted the references is my point. So uh, you you do have to perhaps initiate yourself a little bit into the Proclaimers' work. I was very curious about... To really openly appreciate those little details and jokes that they're throwing in I was very worried about whether or not, because I was like, I'm the target audience for this. Mm. Maybe I'm not, except for being Scottish, but like... I'm like, I like the Reclaimers a lot and I love their music and I would like to see a jukebox musical about them, please. And I remember this movie like premiered at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival uh, whenever it came out, like around 2013, 2014. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it played the festival that year or not, but, um, and it just didn't, I guess it never got picked up. They just thought Americans wouldn't be that interested. So it never got released here in any meaningful fashion. Mm. Um, which sucks. I feel like at least would have gotten some indie traction. Would have at least been worth putting out in some way. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I was genuinely curious how Whitney, who's only really familiar with one or two Proclaimers songs, would respond to a movie that's basically just you like the Proclaimers. Yeah. Like that's kind of the whole <laughs> the whole gag. So I want to uh, hear your mm. thoughts on the movie as someone who is. Yeah. From coming from the outside in, didn't recognize all the music, hearing some of it for the first time. Well, uh, what I got was not necessarily, um, you know, I, I can, I'm, I'm not bringing any affection into the movie because yeah. I don't know these songs. But what I am getting is a good cross section as to what the Proclaimers were all about. And it was about how I started the review was how they're really kind of charming and bright, folksy, twee and warm. And that is kind of a t- the tone that they go for in the entire film. There's a lot of big dramatic things. It's a soap opera of a story. It's yeah. about uh, two soldiers who are coming home from Afghanistan to their ho- small hometown in Scotland to reconnect with their true loves. And they, yeah. or they in one case, meet their true, meet love. their true love. They're both going to date. Yeah. And, and fall in love. They're, yeah. they're going to come home and they're going to fall in love. Uh, one of them, uh, his father has a big drama with, a resurfaced love child he had 24 years ago that he never told his current wife about. And they've been married for 25 years. They're about, yeah. Um, The, the mother character is played by Jane Horrocks, who is a huge uh, European sensation. Uh, She's wonderful. You know her from little voice and from ab fab. And if you don't know little voice, see little voice is a pretty good movie about it. I hear the show was better, but Mm. the movie is very, very good. And and the movie wisely, uh, based on the show, got Jane Horrocks from the stage production. Yeah. They didn't recast that part. She's a, she's a hell of a performer. She's easily the best singer in the movie. Mm. Uh, well, because she, she's a professional stage there, There's a couple of the other cast mm. who are quite good, but Jane Horrocks is just giving mm. everything. Like, she's really, really great. Um, yeah, but like, so there's uh, but, yeah, drama there's, with the there's that well. dra- There's drama with the parents as well, uh, and there's, yeah, there's the romantic drama between the two central couples. Uh, and the movie kind of drifts back and forth between who's the protagonist, because at first it's going to be about the two young couples, and they kind of take a backseat for a big, long portion mm-hmm. while the parents have their drama. Yeah. 
uh, one of the uh, one of the true loves is going to move away. She has ambitions to become a medical student in Miami. Yeah, and that's sort of her drama. She doesn't want to leave this small town. And uh, well, she does, but or, yeah, the question or, is, will she or won't she? Yeah, yeah, she, like she wants to, but she feels like she'd be leaving something behind. And she doesn't know if she wants to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the other couple. Just, it's just sort of fine. Just they're fine. Like there, there's there's a there's a moment where there's a fight, and uh, the main character, uh, one of the main characters, is played by uh, the actor, uh, let me, uh, George McKay. Yeah, who you who, probably know as the protagonist of from, 1917. Yeah, he was, he was bothering us the whole film. Like, what who is that guy? guy? Oh, he's the guy from 1917. Yeah. Uh, he uh, because he's a soldier, he's sort of marked by war. He doesn't want to go back to the military. That was a horrible experience. Because it's a horrible experience, yeah. and uh, he gets in a fist fight and becomes unexpectedly violent very quickly, and that uh, disturbs his his girlfriend, mm-hmm. and that's their drama. It's like I can't. I'm not sure if I can live with you. You seem mm-hmm. to be a different person now that, now that I know you have this violence in you. There's also this bit where he's really biased against uh, England being Scottish. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's a long history uh, there, uh, but frankly, their whole storyline is the easiest of all mm. <laughs> they just they both like each other they're not sure if they want to be together they've got to have a few serious conversations mm-hmm. and then they'll be fine <laughs> the other relationships are you cheated on me 24 years ago and you had a daughter and you never told me and now i feel like our whole relationship mm-hmm. has been a lie on some level and that's not entirely unreasonable for her to really have a really strong reaction to that so fine and then the other guy is in love with um uh the main George, McKay's, George McKay's sister, mm. and uh, he wants he wants to marry her, and she wants to move to America. Mm. That's not going to go great either. But These are not it's not big, not a, no. it's not a sister. But that was a sister. No, they were they were like childhood friends. Didn't you mm. live with his mom? No, they're they're just childhood friends. Okay, weird. Okay, well in any case, <laughs> anyway, they're close. Mm. Uh, I digress. My point is, uh, these storylines are not epic. They're not trying to tell, like Across the Universe did, like the story of the 60s. They're not trying to tell the ultimate Scottish story Mm. or anything like that. It's actually basically a good episode of like... Like a CW team drama. Like, oh, what's next on Scottish One Tree Hill? Okay, well, (laughs) they're doing a Proclaimers episode and it's going to be a great gimmick. Like, that's kind of where we're at here. It's actually pretty mild. (laughs) I think that's one of the reasons why why they didn't like run at the possibility of releasing it to American audiences because it feels kind of small. You said Scottish One Tree Hill, and I could only think Scottish One Tree Hill, but came down a mountain. Uh, (laughs) I think that was technically Welsh, but okay. Whatever, whatever. (laughs) I wanted to make the joke. the the music is the re- the reason to come to this. The music is delightful. It's staged in a really creative way in that they let the cast sing. Luckily, not on camera. Mm-hmm. They dubbed them over, which was wise. Yeah, Tom Hooper. And uh, <laughs> you don't know how to make musical movies, Tom Hooper. Stop it. Stop. But thanks for giving us cats. That was a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh. <laughs> But uh, they're, they're, the approach to the music isn't to, uh, like, like an Across the Universe, to really ha- set in this really stylized universe where things get really colorful and splashy and they spin the mm. camera around and everybody's dressed in this really stylized, unrealistic fashion. They actually make the, give them all these really realistic settings and have the dancing be really kind of amateurish. Mm-hmm. This, and that lends a kind of clunky charm to it. It actually makes the music seem a lot more sincere. 
Yeah. Because it's actually being thought up of on the spot by these people rather than by a bunch of professional dancers. Yeah. I, I think it's a little hit and miss. Um, I think sometimes mm. it's really cute and charming. Like there's a couple of them that take place in a bar. And in that yeah. kind of kind of tipsy setting, whatever, you get a lot of leeway mm. to just be cute and funny. And both of the ones at the bar are great. Mm. Uh, there's a couple where... What, what, which is the song they sing in the bar? Well, there's um, well, there's two, actually. There's um, Let's Get Married, That's, uh, which I is like, super charming. Gets, let, that, I think that was my favorite sequence in the movie, was the yeah. Let's Get Married sequence. Let's Get Married is really, really cute, because there's like, this bartender who explains to a guy how to like propose mm. uh, to the girl he likes, and he, he's not in the movie. <laughs> it's just one scene, but he gets <laughs> the whole song, and he's super charming, and he's great, and I love mm. him. And the other one is over and done with, where just everyone gets up on their table and tells a drunken story. Mm. And, and this, uh, this is a sad story, but it's over and done with. Exactly. And, it's a really, really good bit. Uh, it's, I, I actually, I really like that particular take on that song. I in fact, that was really clever. most of the Proclaimers songs, at least as they're presented in this, sound like pop songs. Yeah. They sound like something you'd hear, you'd hear in a bar. They, they have sort of a, whether they're upbeat or whether they're kind of melancholic, you got a pint in your hand. Yeah. And, uh, that's a good take. Well, yeah, how, however, however you think of, feel about pop songs, I think that's actually a, a good, rich musical tradition. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of that is really, really wonderful. There's a, Jason Fleming has a good bit. He's not a great singer, but he has a really charming bit where uh, Jane Horrocks is he's, upset. He, he's an excellent actor, though, and he yeah. sells the part he, he sings. He sells a great, you know? just not a great singer, but that doesn't really hurt this one. Uh, the, the one actor who, for me, I just I wanted him to stop because he's a wonderful actor. Wonderful actor. Not a good singer. <laughs> that's Peter Mullen. Hmm. Really, really he wonderful plays the actor. the dad character. Yeah, I think he's a really incredible actor. You, you'd know him from um, Children of Men, Braveheart, Harry Potter. Uh, really great actor. I nothing but respect for Peter Mullen. Just not a great singer, and I just thought maybe the movie could have used more of them. But anyway. Um but uh, Jason Fleming gets the cheer up song and he's a great song called you should have been loved. Mm. Uh, and it's about how, you know, you've been let down, messed around, but when you should have been loved, you mm. should have been loved this whole time. And it's a great cheer up song and they play it in a peppy way. And he's really, really fun with it. Some of the songs I feel aren't so much like charmingly simple as they are lazily choreographed. <laughs> There's a couple where, it's, and it's mostly with George McKay, where mm. it's just like, and now we're going to sit in these chairs, and then we're going to turn away from each other, mm. and now we're going to sit in these chairs. And I'm thinking to myself, I feel like we could have tried a little harder this time, maybe a smidge. <laughs> like that, they were you. You brought that up while we were watching the scene. It's like they're not doing much in terms of choreography. Yeah, I, I wish they would have uh, just sung to each other. I didn't need to, to, to. Why even bother with choreography? Just at this to make point? make it a little bit more visually dynamic. And yeah. uh, I, they they were editing the hell out of that scene. It was yeah. really well edited. Uh, this was directed by Dexter Fletcher, who also did uh, Rocket Man, which I didn't see. So good. Um, it's a really, he's really the, good the uncredited director of Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. who uh, shot a lot of the movie after Brian Singer stormed off the set. Yeah, he wanted to make Bohemian Rhapsody. Brian Singer ended up doing the movie. A bunch of shit happened. And then <laughs> Dexter Fletcher was brought in to finish the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't envy him. That's, that's no, a rough and, situation. And the, the, the fact that it, that it feels as cohesive as it does is kind of a miracle. Yeah. The, the editing is all over the place on that movie. Agreed. But um, he's uh, really he got also, a good knack for this. He also did Eddie the Eagle, uh, the Taron Edgerton uh, biography of the Ski Jumper. That I haven't seen. Uh, I, that I did see. And um, 
his films are all relentlessly upbeat. He's not saccharine like uh, Richard Curtis, uh, mm-hmm. but he is has a really good eye for just brazen optimism. And that's the infectious energy that he's bringing to Sunshine on Leaf. Yeah. I agree. I think, and, um, and yeah. he's so, and he's so interested in that optimism and really kind of looking at the music and letting the music dictate the feeling of the scene rather than the singing or like the presentation. Yeah. He's letting the music stand on its own. I agree. That even when it's, uh, so even when it's like maybe not featuring some good dancing or, mm-hmm. you know, he's not going to cast good dancers just having like shooting around them and letting them kind of jump around is letting the, the song come to life. I, I think this is what he's good at. I mm. think after seeing this in rocket man, which are very, they're both juice black musicals, uh, but they're very, very different in tone. Rocket mm. man is a show. Rocket man has yeah. elaborate choreography, really colorful stuff. And it. it's, it's really good. I love that movie. Actually, the more I think about that movie, the more I like that movie. Um, but that one is elaborate and this is really small. And that one is elaborate because Elton John is an elaborate person, isn't he? <laughs> he's a hell of a showman. And that's and he's telling his own story. And indeed, in that one, even though it's a biogra- it's a biography, the songs are mixed up. They don't come in the order in which he wrote them. They come in the order in which they make sense of the story. Mm. And I think that's a smart move. I think that makes the movie flow really well. And I think in something like, I was thinking about uh, actually the movie La La Land when I was watching Sunshine on Lee. The movie which I, I think is overhyped. Mm. I, I, I know a lot of people love it. Good for them. Personally, I see a lot of things that frustrate me about it. And I think it's merely just okay when all is said and done. And when you look at like the characters in La La Land, the protagonists, um, your uh, Ryan Gosling's and your Emma Stone's. And how they're not good dancers either. Hmm. But the movie acts like they are And it films them yeah. like they are And it takes place in this rarefied version of Hollywood In which we're sort of And we're sort of highlighting this very uh, Nostalgic Approach To musical storytelling And as a result The fact that they're not good dancers and not good singers Actually undermines I think What the film is getting at in Sunshine on Leith, no one is pretending to be good at this. No one is pretending to be a great musician or an yeah. actor or artist. These are just regular folk who are expressing themselves and the tools they have to do that are proclaimer songs. Mm. And that works mostly here. And again, I don't think it, they get away with every single one. I think some of them are yeah. better than others, but mostly this one really, really works. And they I'm were very, to... very wise to give yeah. the title number to Jane Horrocks. Like the best numbers they give to the best singers and, usually, and the, the title song is Jane Horrocks. Yeah, and exactly. The, and uh, what was what was the her other big number? Oh, uh, she gets Sunshine on Leith, and she gets um, uh, she gets most of Letter from America. That there, that's yeah. a that's that's a God, I love that song. <laughs> um, so she she they 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 mostly save the big showstoppers, the big emotional songs for the people that they cast who really had the chops for it, mm. which was smart. Yeah, I think, uh, but not yeah, because not everything works. I'm trying to think of other musicals that did that. Um, that that, were like, that that tried to um, enhance the music by presenting them as kind of amateurish rather than professional. And um, there's there's one that comes to mind. It's a Woody Allen film, so uh, I'm starting yeah. to have to, have to also bring not a good his. one. Uh, it's Everyone Says I Love You. It's actually mm. a Woody Allen film that uh, was a big big fan of. Um, 
but yeah, in that one, yeah, there are people in that movie who are professional singers and they were instructed to sing, uh, like below their ordinary belting yeah. level or at the very least because, not try very yeah and hard. and, yeah. and the, there's like musical numbers that are choreographed but they're choreographed in kind of an awkward way and i think that actually serves the film positively oh, i I, but, uh, I think at some point you just mm. hit this point of no return mm. where it's yeah julie roberts can't sing there's a reason <laughs> there's a reason we don't ask her to sing very mm. often it's because she's a great actor i actually think she's a really wonderful actor mm. Not a good singer. Mm. Just I think at some point it's just like but there's only, a reason we dub people sometimes. I think she only has the one song. Well, but, yeah, but that's I think that's true for everyone in that mm. movie. Actually, I think mm. practically everyone only has the one song. Or yeah, I guess so. There's maybe like one number where a bunch of people join in, but like See, the mostly old... they're not. Mostly mm. they're not good songs. I mean, the songs themselves are good because they're very old Cole Porter new tune, but. Mm. None of it's them. The only, none uh, of them are showstoppers. The, the only film the, the, there is one showstopper, and it's the Chiquita Banana song. Oh. They actually sing the Chiquita Banana jingle oh, in that Jesus movie. Uh, anyway, let's stop talking about a Woody Allen film. Thank um, you. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other <clears throat> like because like, Jukebox musicals actually go back a lot further than people realize. Oh, this they're one, they're quite old. Like the people, trend is quite. We old. We think of them now because it's like it's usually like oh here's some pop songs we used to hear on like Kiss FM or whatever, and now they're all together in one movie. And well, Ma- Mama Mia kind of opened up a new trend in them. Yeah, it really uh, repopularized. Yeah, it. that it was it was, a, it was a hit on Broadway that was turned into two movies. Yeah. And uh, Moulin Rouge the, is mostly a jukebox musical. For example, oh, that one was totally. Oh yeah, there's some original songs, but it's mostly jukebox. There's, there was there's, one basically. Well, there's there's spectacular, spectacular, but even that's classical music that they just changed the lyrics to. And then there's uh, come what may, but that was actually written for Romeo and Juliet. So even though it was, was even though no one knew, anyway. even though no one knew it, it mm. was new to us. It wasn't even new. Mm. Um, but like if you look at something like Singing in the Rain, arguably the greatest movie musical of all time. There's like two new songs in that movie and one of them is not singing in the rain <laughs> that's actually a really old song yeah it's only known for that movie now but that was like people have been singing that in movies since the dawn of sound in like 1929 um so it can be done you just have to be really really clever about it um the idea of building a jukebox musical around the music of only one group relatively more recent in the popular consciousness um can't stop the music uh did that in like 1980 Mm-hmm. where uh, they did an entire musical about the formation of the village people using the music of the village people. I love that movie. That movie was the first movie to win the Razzie Award for Worst Picture. It beat Xanadu. Xanadu's like the worst both, film. <laughs> I, I kind of like both of them. I will say this. Here's what I'll say. Xanadu is <laughs> the better... You can defend Xanadu. No, I'm not going to defend Xanadu very hard. All right. Xanadu is a great soundtrack. Okay. In a vacuum, that's a great soundtrack. Those songs are mostly awesome. Movie, done work. Can't stop the music. The soundtrack is just the village people. You can listen to the greatest hits. You don't need that shit. Uh, the movie is campy and wonderful and fun. And I think that movie really is overdue mm. for like a bit of a critical reassessment of, at the very least, a chintzy fun film. <laughs> it's a really entertaining watch. I had such a good time watching that for the first time last year. It's only eight and a half hours long. I know, and every minute a masterpiece. Um, no, no, it's it's actually it's I think just over two hours. It's big. It's it's a long movie. Yeah, there's a lot of that thing. But I don't I don't think it I don't think it moves terribly slow. I actually no, think it's I, I think it's a real delight. Um, I want to read uh, what our patron uh, had to say about it. Uh, so, Sunshine on Leith, uh, and this is according to uh, LeVert Burtmore. Sunshine on Leith is my Step Up 3D, which is a reference to Whitney and I loving Step Up 3D more than most people. 
back to the uh, comment. We, we, we were screaming the praises of Step Up 3D since day one. Day one. Still waiting for everyone else to catch up. Some people have. Some people have thanked us. Anyway, Sunshine Elise is my Step Up 3D. It's a pure celebration that feels so sincere. The cast did all their own singing, and they're just having a great time. In Edinburgh and Leith, where it was filmed and where the band is from, the Proclaimers are an institution, and the country is proud of them. This movie feels like the whole country is coming together to make a celebration of their music and inviting you into their culture. It tells good stories earnestly using classic music you might not be familiar with from a great band. And the movie ends with such a fun celebration that it just makes you want to be a part of it. That's a good point. They save 500 miles for last. Of course they do. Of course they do. It's what you do. You know, mm. if you're Billy Joel, you don't do Piano Man first. You save it. So <laughs> Everyone will leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are you doing? So, like, you you, you save the, the big guns for last. So when they do 500 miles, they make it the one number where it's, like, takes place outside with a lot of extras, with actual dance choreography that's, like, Dance choreography, dance choreography. Mm. And they make it really cute, actually, because, like, people are ha- having a fight in public. And, like, one guy is going to, like, finally, like, announce his love and, mm. like, make everything right. And as they start singing the song, everyone around them is like, oh, well, it's a good thing you had this fight in front of a big dance academy. Because they start teaching the protagonists the choreography while they're singing it, which is really cute. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely charming, and I thought that was great. I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 an un, it's just such a delightful movie. Yeah, it's really sweet. It's really wonderful. It was made in 2013. I think uh, you're talking about it getting a little bit of traction in the indie houses. That would have happened in '98, hmm, probably. Um, would have happened around the time Betty and June was big. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I don't think this was ever destined to be a hit overseas Probably i think not. this this is only going to be a hit where you're really familiar with the proclaimers let me ask you a question if this came out today mm. and let's say they still don't think it's going to be like look, look, pandemic aside let's take that out of the equation for a minute uh they still don't think it's going to be a big hit mm. in america this gets picked up by like netflix okay this would get some traction online. People are like, have mm. you seen this cute musical on Netflix? I wasn't familiar with these songs. Well, what would happen is it would come out, four critics like us would see it and sing its praise. It would show up on like three top ten lists. And then it would, uh, <laughs> over the course of the next decade, get a very small but very passionate group of, of only critics talking about it. Uh, compared to something like Sing Street. Uh, or, oh, I think yeah. Sing Street is a bigger audience than you're giving it. You think so? Right. I mean, it's not huge, but I think it's very charming. And it's one of those movies that a lot of people bring up as like their feel-good movie right now. It, it would be about as big as Sing Street. I think Sing Street, I, I, I'm actually not the hugest fan of Sing Street. Mm-hmm. I think it's really charming and nice. It's good. Yeah. Um, it didn't blow me away that other people, but it's got a great soundtrack. And I think, it's, I think that's one of those movies where it did okay when it came out. People liked it. And then just people didn't stop talking about it or didn't stop putting it on lists of like their favorite movie soundtracks or feel good films about growing up or whatever. And then 10, 15, 20 years later tops, it's considered a standalone classic. I don't know if this would ever get there, but I do think it would have its defenders and I do think it would have people who really enjoyed it. And it sucks that it's hard to find. Yeah, at the very it least, is. it should be available. Yeah, we had it to get an international copy. It was yeah, just I had hard to, for I had us to buy to it. See, it was yeah. actually kind of hard to find. And I'm glad I did. I'm really, really glad I did. I wanted to see it. I had a great reason to do so. And it's it's delightful. Mm. 
and if you have the opportunity to see it, please do. Search around for it. Again, not everyone who listens to us is uh, in America. Your streaming services might have it in Canada or Australia or yeah, Great Britain or wherever you are. Um, so if that's the case, if you haven't seen it, do. It's sweet. And Black Lightning is available uh, on set quite a few streaming services in America. Yeah, it actually was picked up by Universal, so it yeah. does have some American distributors. There was some talk about remaking it in America, which would have been hilarious to me because it would feel like a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah, uh, but um, they that has not that has gone nowhere. But the Universal logo is in front of it. So like, if you go to like Amazon, you can rent it for a few bucks. And mm-hmm. it's if you if you haven't seen like if you're like oh I miss all my superhero movies. Definitely check it out. It's yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It'll it, scratch it, the it, edge. That's for sure. I was yeah. about to use the exact same phrase. Um, but I want to give a very special thank you uh, to our patron, uh, LeVar Burtmore. Y- y- these were fun movies. This was totally a delightful experience tracking these down, watching them, sharing them with everybody. Um, I feel like my horizons have been expanded a little. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed both of these movies. These are both quite good. Yeah, so thank you everybody once again. And again, uh, we're working on getting through our back catalog of your critically acclaimed requests. We got more coming. Can't wait to get to them. This is one of my favorite things that we do. I said that about a lot of things, but for the most part, we only do things that are my favorite things to do because why else would we do them? <laughs> like, what would we do? Like, hey, welcome to the teeth pulling podcast where we pull our own teeth. Like, no, we're not going to We're gonna do things we like. Um, and I really, really like this. So thank you once again. Thank you for being a patron. Thank you to all of our patrons. Without him, none of our shows would exist. And if you want to join up, you go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive content available for you. And also, this is one of your options as well. Um, you can also track us down on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to email us about any of these movies that we talked about or anything else we discussed in this podcast or anything else at all, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we might read your email and answer it on a, on a future episode of We've Got Mail here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Don't forget to uh, leave us a review wherever you find us. That helps us even if you can't afford to be a patron. Mm. And um, hey, if you like soap, Go to Etsy.com, look up Salt Cat Soap. M. Lapis da Silva has a whole wonderful line of amazing smelling and amazing looking soaps that are currently for sale. And there are new soaps every single month uh, available in that store. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Nope. Okay, thanks, bye. (laughs) You got it all. Thank you. Sincerely yours, maybe? Cool. (laughs) 